0: Hello and welcome to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw which takes a look at the pivotal moments that form the way artists think about sound. We'll be chatting to musicians, producers and boundary breakers, hearing about the standout moments that have made them who they are today. I'm Zakia Sewell, and in this episode, I'll be talking to singer-songwriter and author Michelle Zorna, aka Japanese Breakfast. Hey Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm admiring your incredible backdrop. I know people weren't listening won't be able to see it, but wow, what an incredible collection of photos and pictures. Thank you. Known for her experimental pop sounds and her recent memoir, Exploring Grief and Korean-American Identity. I'm always fascinated to hear about artists sort of early experiences of music so I wonder if you could paint a little picture of your sort of childhood home and the sort of sounds that you grew up with or your you know your early encounters with music.
1: So I grew up in Eugene, Oregon uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up kind of outside of town uh, it's a very beautiful place to live in. There's a lot of nature and natural bodies of water and moss and ferns, and I also think it has a really rich music scene. I definitely was raised on like Pacific Northwestern indie rock, like Death Cab for Cutie and Built to Spill and Elliot Smith and this kind of like dynamic rock music that centered around. Really great lyrics and and very emotional, somewhat confessional type of songwriting. And getting started, um, I was like most moved by this sort of DIY scene because I never felt very comfortable with my voice. I didn't feel like I had uh, real talents as a as a singer or as a, even as a musician, but. I felt like I had a lot of ideas and uh, I really wanted to write songs. I really wanted to be a part of that world. And I think that there was this genre where you didn't have to have those things um, in order to write really compelling music. And I think actually Mount Erie was like a huge influence on me in in that way. Um, Or artists like Kimya Dawson, where it was like, it felt accessible to me. And I think that that was sort of like my first um, connection with music in that way.
0: And when did you first start, you know, experimenting, making your own music and what were those sort of early experiments like? What did they sound like?
1: I wrote my first song, I think, when I was 16 years old and my best friend and I had um, ridden our bicycles to this cafe called Nobody's Baby and it was this very cute cafe uh that was like kind of charming they like had hung up swinging benches and like put all these like canopies with like tool and it was just a really good vibe it was kind of like the first diy cafe like house show that i had gone to uh as a 16 year old and there were three upperclassmen they happened to we happened to see kids from our high school like putting on this diy show and it was just three acoustic sets it was this band uh i forget their names of their projects now but it was andrew this guy andrew barton my friend carrie man and um russell melia who has a project called pegasissi and they're all just like super smart um up cool like upperclassmen that we were watching play acoustic songs uh with you know funny lyrics and i think it was the first moment that i was like i couldn't i can do that you know like uh and and I had just started taking guitar lessons, and I, I think I knew like three chords, and and that's all it took to kind of um, get the courage to write a song. After that, my songs in the beginning were very embarrassing. <laughs> I wrote a song called BFF about my best friend, like when I got home, just about like you know, a, it was like a list of things that my my best friend and I did because I had you know I was like 16 years old, I'd never encountered any sad, real sadness or love or anything. So I was just writing about my friend. They were kind of very like cutesy, like Kimya Dawson ripoff songs.
0: So I mean, you have you have sort of painted a picture already of that sort of scene. But you know, who are the people around you? And where were you hanging out? And where were you, you know, seeing these bands play? What was that kind of paint the picture of that scene in, in Oregon at that time?
1: I mean, Oregon in general is like kind of a passed over place. You know, it's not like L.A. or Seattle. Um, And if bands are going to play in Oregon, they're usually going to play in Portland, Oregon, which is about two hours north of Eugene. Um, So, you know, it was always like the bane of my existence as kind of like a small town kid that all my favorite bands would play Portland. And my parents, my mom was pretty strict and like wouldn't really let me go up there. So if a band did play Eugene, And now that I'm a touring musician, I realize, like, how... You're not, like, putting it all out there for Eugene Orient. uh, (laughs) I would guess. Um, There was a rare occasion when bands would come through, and there was a a venue called the Wow Hall that I would uh, always go to and um, sometimes, like, sneak out of the house to, like, see shows there. I saw, like... um, Joanna Newsom and Smog play there. I saw uh, Menomina and um, who else did I see? M Ward. And when I started playing music, that was kind of like the goal was to
0: play the Wow Hall. So when and how was Japanese Breakfast born? And I'm curious where the where the name comes from as well.
1: Yeah, I started Japanese Breakfast probably. 2013 um I used to be in a band called Little Big League that was kind of like an emo punk project with three boys and you know like we had finished or were working on our second album and we were starting to like kind of butt heads a little bit creatively and I realized like how influential like arrangement and production is I think that I started wanting to have full directorial control over that or, or or wanting to experiment more with that. And I also was getting really stifled by um, the cycle of just um, having to wait so long after writing songs for an album to come out. And so I I wanted to start a little side project. And I had come up with this project called June, where I recorded songs every day for the month of June. Uh, I just wrote and recorded really crappy demos in in between work shifts and came out with a cassette, I think in 2013. And I was uploading the songs to Tumblr at the time. And a lot of the Tumblrs I followed were just like, animated gifts of, like, anime food. Um, and <laughs> I think one of them was just a Japanese breakfast set, uh, steaming or something, and I was like, that's nice. You know, that's, like, such a nice image to think about. And I just titled the project Japanese Breakfast. Um, and then my mom got sick in 2014, and I moved back to Eugene, Oregon, to take care of her. And unfortunately, she passed away. And, you know, around that time, I just like, I had decided to leave the band and and kind of move on. But before uh, I gave up music, I I recorded an album called Psychopomp, which was the first Japanese breakfast album, uh, not thinking that it would really ever amount to to something and and stick with me in the way that it has. And that's how the name came to be and and how the band came together.
0: So we're going to talk a little bit about your writing process for that album, Psychopomp, but... Before that, you know, could you tell me a little bit more about that period of your life and, you know, that the sort of the difficult period that that was sort of part of your process processing in the making of that album? Yeah, so
1: my mom died in October of 2014 and I had been living in Eugene uh as a caretaker when she was going through chemotherapy um for six months and you know like I said my house is kind of like out in the woods which sort of like exacerbated this isolated intense uh experience and you know it's always very strange to return to your childhood home whereas you know once like kind of a happy place and, and we were sort of confronted by this nightmare scenario um and then you know there there is a very sad period that happens uh after someone dies, where you have to pack up the house, and and it takes a very long time, and it's very very painful, and I have no siblings, and it was just my dad and I in this house, um, kind of packing up our lives. Like our, you know, they'd lived there in that house for almost twenty years, and um, you know, the it was a Herculean task trying to to start this new chapter, and I wanted to be there to help my dad through it, and. But yeah, I mean, it was so painful. And I think that Psychopomp was sort of born out of just needing like a private thing for myself to process what had happened. And so I think I probably started writing Psychopomp in December of 2014. Uh, there's a little cottage. My parents had like five acres of land. We were kind of like out in the country. And uh, there was this little, like a better version of a shed uh, at the bottom of the property that I would go to to sort of write songs just to make sense of this whirlwind six months where my life totally fell apart. I think, you know, I've always been a really outspoken person. uh, And it's always been really important for me to be honest and open and communicative with other people. And it was the first time in my life that I was, I I discovered I was very, very quiet when something uh, that huge entered into my life. Um, I had a really hard time communicating what I was going through to my friends and family, and I think that it was sort of, writing that record was like, trying to say everything I I wanted to say to other people and to myself. And then when I left, I moved to New York and I reached out to my Fred, friend, Ned Eisenberg, uh, to mix the album. And in the process of doing that, we kind of started opening the songs back up and, and changing them quite a bit. And it's, it went from just mixing to, to kind of reproducing and rearranging the album. You know, Everybody Wants to Love You, I think, was probably sped up by like 50 BPM. I've never seen someone work that way. Like, at one point, I was like, I wish that this song lifted. Like, it's almost like I hear this sound, like, like a hawk, like, crying out, like, as a lift into the chorus. And he was just like, well, then let's do that. And then, you know, we just found a sample online of just, like, a hawk screeching and, like, nudged it in there. And that was the first time that I realized that that was something that you could do. This idea that sounded so crazy and like embarrassing to say out loud was actually something uh, that could function really well in, in songs and I think that that's something that's happening more and more with modern music is that um, if you hear a sound like it's so easy to like Google the, the sound and, and find what you want there and Ned really sort of opened me up to, to realizing that um, anything was, was possible with technology in this way.
0: So when you so just to clarify for me, um, when you're talking about sampling, you're sort of are you incorporating other artist music, or are you incorporating kind of what you're talking about, sort of more like found sounds kind of samples?
1: There's like an anime. There's a sample from like an anime end credit in one of the songs on Psychopomp.
0: You know, there's there's a few moments
1: like that, but it's it's mostly just found found sampling like that that, that I've, I've done before and um, I think before that, you know and, and even when I made psychopomp with um, Colin and Nick and Peter, I've always just done like a rock classic like rock bands like l- try to get the live band sound. Um, and I think psychopomp and I think Japanese breakfast really and my approach to music really changed when I was working on psychopomp with Ned because, you know, I just realized how important production can make in impacting a record and, and sound and that there was, there was no limitations. Whereas before I had made records, I was always thinking about how is this band going to sound live? Like we should just, this song is the song that we play live, like let's get that down. And because I had no real ambition to be in a touring band for Japanese Breakfast, I had no, I, I, I had no plan to like play these songs live. I was just like, well, we should just do whatever sounds good. Uh, That really changed my experience with sound. I feel like working on that record with Ned.
0: So, you know, who are your biggest inspirations? Who are the bold songwriters and reinventors who you look towards and who, you know, you may model yourself on?
1: I think I've always been really influenced uh, by bands like Wilco. Like I think that Wilco is is a, a career model for any band where they're just constantly innovating from record to record for jubilee in particular i was really inspired by kate bush and um but particularly kate bush i think for this new album like i wanted to find a brand of pop that was bizarre and weird and singular like it's so crazy to me that kate bush has such a massive appeal to such a wide audience and yet her music is so bonkers, wacky. And I think I just really wanted to find what that was like uh, for myself and and challenge myself that way. I think that that's what really motivated me on on this last album was was to find what my version of that was.
0: And with this more recent album, you've talked about a kind of shift away from grief towards joy. And, you know, I was wondering whether there was a kind of specific moment or happening in your life that kind of marked that shift or influenced that shift.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I've been wanting to not write about the death of my mother and grief for a really long time. At this point, it's been eight years since she died and I've written two albums and and I wrote a book called Crying in H Mart about it. And I think that, you know, grief is something that stays with you forever, obviously, but, um, I think creatively it was time for me to move on. Uh, and I think that after I wrote crying in H Mart, uh, I had said everything I needed to say about that experience. I don't think I was done talking about that experience until I wrote that book. And so it just felt like I had reached a point in my life where, you know, I was ready to, to move on. And I felt like the most, um, surprising and exciting thing to do uh, for someone that has this narrative of being grief girl uh, was to write an album about joy.
0: And, you know, how was that process for you? And through the making of the album, you know, was there a particular moment where things really came together or, you know, was it was it a struggle? Did you find it kind of diff- difficult to inhabit that different space? What, what was that process like? You know,
1: after writing Crying in H Mart, I was so excited to get back to writing a record because you know i just felt like such an idiot <laughs> writing a book <laughs> like i was very out of my element it's so lonely it's so long you just have to confront your stupidity in like such a real way when you write a book and writing an album just is like so much more of an intuitive con- collaborative process it's something i know really well like at that point you know I had written two albums as Japanese Breakfast and two albums as Little Big League. So it was it was kind of like my fifth record. And so it, it felt like I knew what I was doing at that point. Um, and I, I worked with Craig Hendricks again, who is the producer on uh, Soft Sounds from Another Planet. And he plays drums in the live band. And he also co-produced this album with me, uh, Jubilee. And um, we wor- work really well with one another and and, and kind of like have a... A shorthand with with each other at this point so I was so like just full of joy going into the the writing process and um, I thought a lot about artist catalogs uh, for this record it's the first time I've ever made a third LP and I think by the time you reach the third LP um, you start kind of considering your albums in context with one another and what you're trying to showcase um, I was really inspired by like Bjork's trajectory where you have debut and then post and then homogenic is like her big statement melodrama piece. I wanted our version of that, you know, reach for the stars. (laughs) But So I knew that I wanted this record to be bombastic. I wanted it to have a lot of horns um, because the Jubilee is a trumpet blast of victory. So I knew there were gonna be a lot of trumpet. And so we just had like a wider toolbox to reach into I think for this record and we wanted to kind of like throw it all out there
0: Know, where, where next, and what next? And you know, having made this move with the recent album towards joy, you know, where do you see yourself in your songwriting process going forward? That's a great question. I'm like
1: kind of in this new space where I'm in a quiet moment in the cycle where like our our major touring is kind of settled down. We're starting to do festivals and and having um, some time off. I don't know. It, it's it's. I'm kind of in my favorite place right now, where like I'm just a sponge, like starting to get ideas for things. I think one thing, the what I've been thinking about a lot lately is is um, how much the live performance has influenced the re- the what I want to do subconsciously with the record. So, I would say like almost half of the songs on Jubilee, I I don't play the guitar live. Like I just am am singing, and I think after doing a, a full cycle on tour like that i don't <laughs> i realize i went like too far in the other direction and i really missed the guitar so i think that for the new record i, I do think that there will i will return more to the guitar yeah i'd love to learn more like classical to guitar and and um i don't know i've gotten like really into dad rock and i don't know if that's like something that's like gonna stick but like I've just been like wanting to write an album that's like a timeless kind of like Jim Croce meets like George Harrison kind of vibe, like. But we'll we'll see if that is really what happens.
0: I I feel like my fans would be upset if I did that. I'm, I mean, dad rock, dad rock is coming back. I know a lot of peop- a lot of people who are well <laughs> into their dad rock these days. Um, just you know, more generally in terms of you know music, and I think you painted a picture of your like early life and teenage. You know, you're as a teenager, like being part of a scene and live music being such a part of your kind of influence. Does that still stand? And, you know, are are there kind of current bands and current acts that you're sort of excited to see and excited to be kind of working around and with?
1: Um, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's such a different relationship because like when you're like before you you are a touring musician, like it's it's such a magical wonder of what's like happening before you and it still is but it's more of like how do they do that what can i steal from it like who can i call that they work with you know it's like it's a different kind of interaction that you have with it um but i think that uh i i just have you know i caroline Polachek just re- released a new song and i think that i i love her music and i think she's so inventive Alex G is, is, like I said, one of my favorite songwriters, and, and he's such an inspiration to me. Um, I also really love um, the Japanese band Chai. I think that Wink was like one of my, my favorite albums of uh, 2021. And yeah, I love the new Mitski record. I feel like she's someone that's always really inspired me, and, and I'm such a fan of, of her.
0: And what about sort of more broadly, you know, in music in general? Obviously, the music industry has really struggled over the past couple of years, and there's a feeling now that things are starting to sort of emerge again. So, you know, is there anything that you're sort of excited about the possibilities sort of going forward?
1: Um, I think that the the one takeaway, or or maybe the couple of takeaways that I I, I find myself and other musicians kind of interacting with is after so much time off, like forced time off. I think it made me and and at least a lot of my friends kind of reevaluate the hustle. This idea of like the show must go on is maybe not the greatest mentality to have all the time. I think it's made me consider the music community and my role in protecting my fan base and my community. You know, I I think that it's just made me think more about the power that we have as musicians and uh, how important it is to wield it responsibly and uh, that there are certain responsibilities that come with that power that we have to be cognizant of moving forward. And I think that those are a couple of important lessons that we can learn from this time period that I see a lot of my friends starting to to grapple with. and, And yeah, just like also our our, our impact on the world and, and what we can do to, to improve conditions, I think. Uh, because, you know, like, touring is not the most, like, eco-friendly uh, part of our jobs. And I think that um, it's been inspiring to see how people can get creative. Learning more about consent and communication uh, was one thing that was really important for me to take away
0: uh, in this time. It just kind of makes me think almost about, like, that psychopomp process of, like, you know, there are dark periods and then there are periods for quietness and reflection and then there are periods for emergence and creativity that sort of follow. So hopefully that's what we're, we're going to see. I'm Zakia Sewell and you've been listening to Signal Path. A podcast series by Shaw. This episode was recorded remotely with the SM7B and Beta 58 microphones.